Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to pick it right back up where we left off. Last time we talked about Paul, talking about the Macedonian church and how they had first given themselves to the Lord and what generous people they were, and, and, and even in the midst of their poverty. And, but yet, because of their relationship with God, they were able to go above and beyond all that Paul had even asked them to do. And he was amazed at that. And it was a bragging point for Paul. And so as he was talking to the Corinthians and probably even other churches, Paul would always use these guys as an illustration of what it was to have a heart of generosity. And so we start right here. I'm going to go back to verse 6, and we'll take a run and start at it. Look at verse 6 here in chapter 8. He says, In so much that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. We talked about him using this term of, you know, this grace and talking about the grace of giving is what he's talking about. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith, utterance, knowledge, and in all diligence, in your love to us, See that you abound in this grace also. So after Paul had bragged about the liberal giving of the Macedonians, he pointed out to the Corinthians that they abounded in everything. They were also affluent, if you will, in the things of the Spirit. A long time back when we started 1 Corinthians, you know, we talked about the issue of the Corinthian church and how they were really on top of it when it came to the things of the Spirit. They were overflowing in well, as Paul says, in faith and utterance and those type of things that belong to the Spirit. What they didn't overflow with was biblical common sense and not unlike a lot of church today, unfortunately. A lot of people are just biblically illiterate and so they wind up involved in things that they shouldn't be involved in. But Paul was bragging to them about the, 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 the Macedonians. And the word grace here, you know, we didn't talk about it last time, but I, I do want to mention it, that it, it comes from the Greek word charis. And I love that word because it, it basically means to have liberality. It means to have favor, if you will. And some people have even defined it as anything that's beautiful, anything that's lovely. You know, it has that kind of... And so this grace, this charis that Paul's talking about was something that was flowing freely in the Macedonian church, even though they were impoverished, Yet he's encouraging the Corinthians to do exactly the same thing. Let this grace be in you also. Look at verse 8. He says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. So Paul wasn't giving them a commandment. He wasn't telling them, you have to do this. You know, this is the beauty of the thing, walking in the grace of God. Because not just in giving, but really in all things that we do for the Lord, they're a get to and not a have to because that's the whole issue of grace. That's why grace is so important because if it's a have to, then that is legalism, that is law, and that's what the Old Testament was all about. God showing mankind his lack of ability to do it anyway. So once again, it's by grace. It's a get to. I'm not telling you this by commandment, Paul says, but really it's, it's your opportunity to really show what you really feel and how you might give to the Lord freely. And so having made this statement, Paul now gave the Corinthians a much greater example, which is really significant. His example now goes to something even higher. Look at verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. So Paul, he first uses the Macedonian, you know, as an example. But he gives them this great illustration that is so much closer to home. And not only for their sake, but also for ours. That Jesus Christ, though he had created the universe, though he owned the universe, the Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. As a matter of fact, in the book of Colossians, it says that all things were created by him and for him. And, you know, it was, it was his riches, if you will. This was something that the Lord himself had. This was his life with the Father and the Holy Spirit, this beautiful trinity that they had before time ever began for us. They shared in these riches of, of the creation. And yet, for our sake, Christ came to this humbly to this earth. And, you know, religion is one of those things where when you study religion, and you always find that it is man's way of trying to be good, trying to attain unto God, you know, trying to reach up to the Lord, if you will. God's way of dealing with us, though, is the Lord himself coming in the form of a man, humbling himself, if you will, and kneeling down to us. You know, it's like the story of the pearl of great price. I had an old preacher one time say, you can always tell how somebody's understanding of grace is by their understanding of that parable. Because if you see if you see Christianity as the pearl of great price and you have to give it all up for that, then you have missed the point of that story because it was Christ who gave up everything. You are the pearl of great price. And he came here to purchase everything. You know, he, with his own blood, though, though he was rich, Paul says, he became poor that we might be rich. He gave it all up for us. Even in Psalms 24, 1, it says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. I mean, you can't own more than the world. And yet he did all that he did, giving it all up for us. For your sakes, Christ became poor, he says, that through his poverty you might be made rich. Look at verse 10. He says, herein I give my advice. For this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do but also to be forward a year ago. If you're taking notes, make note of that year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it that as there was a readiness to will so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. So Paul pointed out that they had actually been talking about this giving. I mean he mentioned it you remember back in the first letter. And so here it's been a year since they've been talking about it, yet there has not yet been a performing of it. They haven't done it yet. So Paul's telling them, look, let's get on with it. You know, let's, let's a little less talk and a little more doing. So often we can get caught up in just talking. You know, we have meetings. Some churches, things get caught up in committees or in boards to the point where nothing ever gets done. Oh, there's a lot of talking. But nothing gets done because there's no leadership. The implication that Paul said here is that there was, there's a time, really, to, to, to be in action. Not to be in prayer, but to be in action. Sometimes people will spend more time in prayer meetings 
when really the Lord just wants us to do it. And a great example of that, and, and you've probably heard me use it because the Bible, it's, it's so great as far as a biblical illustration. Remember Moses, when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, and Pharaoh decides he's going to pursue them. And so he gets them cornered, one mountain to the right, one mountain to the left, and they got the Red Sea in front of them and no retreat. And Pharaoh's coming. And what's Moses do? He drops to his knees and he begins to cry unto the Lord. And what's the Lord telling? Why are you crying unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. So there comes this time when, listen, common sense dictates it's a time for action, not a time for prayer. Now, prayer is always good, my friends. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But God, in his great wisdom, has given us this illustration of Moses to let us know that, you know what, sometimes you can just keep praying and praying and praying because there's not a will, really, to do what it is that you're praying about. But Paul says if there's a will to do it, then do it. <laughs> you know, these guys have been talking about it for a year. Make it so, is what he's telling them. Look at verse 12. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath and not according to that he has not. I love this verse. When a person has a will to give, when they want to give, Paul says that it's according to what you have, not according to what you have not. This, this is where the problem with presumptuous giving comes in. And what I mean by that is that often in order to find or to fund, excuse me, certain programs or things that a church wants to do. Sometimes the leadership of those particular fellowships will begin to encourage strongly the church to give to certain things. And then sometimes they do what is called fundraising or pledge raising, really. And so they ask for pledges ahead of time. I knew a couple, this happened many years ago when I was doing my first stint in Christian radio. And this was how that radio station raised its money. The first year we were there, they would have what they called an involve-a-thon. And so they would get on the air and day and night for 24-7, it was kind of like a telethon, and they basically would ask for money, you know. But the way they did it was they wanted you to pledge, you know. And I remember the, the guy who owned the station at the time, he says, look, if you don't have it, don't worry about it. Just pledge. Send in your pledge. I even remember the phone number. They had a little jingle for it, you know. <laughs> Called 455-3181. I mean, it was funny, but I still remember that like 30 years later. But, you know, don't even worry about whether you're going to have it because God will supply it, you see. You presumptuously just write a number <laughs> and send that in. Tell us you're going to give it. The problem with that is it's totally contrary to Scripture. Paul says if there's a willingness to give, it must be based upon what a person has and not what a person has not. Why? Because, as we found out from the involvedons, many people, by the time that pledge comes due, you see, does not have the money. And so they simply do not send it in. A very well-known one, more up-to-date, was Bob Coy. Uh, I know Bob Coy, and, and Bob used to pastor Fort Lauderdale, huge church, 14,000 strong. Well, it takes a big building for a, a group of people that like that. And so they needed a brand new building. 
and, and really did need it. This was an actual need. I mean, 14,000 in a congregation, can you imagine? That's one campus. And so they needed a new building. Well, that new building was going to cost several million dollars. So Bob, even though he knew that the Bible does not really teach pledging, went ahead and, and they stirred up a pledge. And I never forget it because he said that what came in on pledges was a hundred and $91 million in pledges. Now, a year later, how much of that $191 million actually came to fruition? Not even half of it. So half of the people didn't even have the money to pay it. And I, I got to be at, I was at the pastor's conference when Bob Coy happened to be there and got up and apologized to all of his peers for having gotten off into that because what you wind up doing is putting people in a very bad situation. You know, because their heart, I think, is genuine. They want to do it. And, but, but they're listening to this coercion, you see, going, oh, yeah, don't, don't pay any attention. Just go ahead and make the pledge and, and, and it'll be there. Well, it, it isn't. Paul says it's according to what a man has and not according to what a man has not. Look at verse 13. He says, for I mean not that other men should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. So Paul's not wishing to create a problem for anybody, not for the, the Corinthians, uh, or, or to, you know, to ease one person and make somebody else you know, burdened. In order to ease the Jerusalem church, Paul was simply asking that they would just have mercy on these guys that, you know, who knows? You know, in the future, it could be that Jerusalem will be prosperous again and that maybe the Corinthians would find themselves in need and it would be the Jerusalem church that would help them out. You know, Paul simply is saying, listen, we just need to have some equality. Galatians 6.10, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but especially those of the household of faith. Paul's simply encouraging these guys to do what they can do to help out these dear brothers back in Jerusalem. Look at verse 15. He says, as it is written, he that gathered much had nothing over. Of course, Paul's referring back to Exodus when the Lord was, uh, you know, the manna from heaven, that bread which was coming down. They were told to gather, you know, they weren't allowed to gather on the Sabbath, but they were, they were allowed to gather. And he says, as it was written, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. And I love the fact that that's the way it is with the Lord. That those of us who have learned to walk in faith and, and really trusting the Lord for our income, because that's what it is, God guides, God provides, it's just that there would be no lack. And so often I have found miracle after miracle, I remember me and Kale was talking about it, and, and really for years we were very privileged to watch the Lord do it over and over and over again without any coercion, without any schemes, just God coming in and supplying that, that there would be no lack. Look at verse 16. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose, whose praise is in the gospel throughout the churches. So Paul wanted them to know that Titus had the same care, you know, that he did. 
But who was this brother? We have no idea. Evidently, he was pretty well known. The churches knew who he was, and he had kind of a name, he says, within the gospel amongst the churches. Some people have suggested it was Luke, but we really don't know. Paul never says who this other brother is. And not that only, verse 19. But who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace? Once again, with, with the, the funds that they had raised. Which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Paul made it clear that he would not be solely responsible. And, that, and we're getting into a very interesting part of the scripture. He didn't want to be solely responsible for seeing that this offering made it to Jerusalem. He had these two trusted brothers who were going to accompany him back to Jerusalem with this offering. Look at verse 20. He says, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is ministered by us. So Paul wanted to be very careful with the issue of money, recognizing that it's the Lord's money given by the Lord's people. Therefore, he wanted the accounting of these funds to be above board. You know, no questions asked in order to avoid any suspicion upon himself of having played loose and fast with the Lord's money. Verse 21. Providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And I think that's important. It's extremely important, really, within the church that accurate accounting records be kept of how much money comes in and how much money goes out. You, want, you, you need to know that. You know, we, we want to have transparency. The church's books should be open to those who attend and financially support the church. I've always been an advocate and made it a policy where I pastored that we would have transparency amongst the people who were in the fellowship, those who were tithers, those who were givers. Now, sometimes strangers would actually come in and they want to look at the books. I would simply say, it ain't none of your business, okay? <laughs> but if you give and you are part of that fellowship, it is every bit your business. You need to know because stewardship within the body of Christ is extremely important, my friends. And so often churches play so loose and so fast and I'll just call them shenanigans with the numbers, that sometimes what's on the paper isn't really what's happening. So you need to really know. Stewardship is very, very important. And we want to see how God is operating. So this is what Paul's talking about. Paul really wants to have this transparency. He wants there to be this openness when it comes to handling of God's money. Verse 22, he says, And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner in the fellow, and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brother uh, be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches uh, to the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show you to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul was encouraging them to just give generously to prove what he had said about them was true. And I have to admit, it sounds like he was getting a little um, <laughs> antsy about it. 
You know, why? Because he had told all these other people of what great givers these people were, how generous the Corinthians were. And he had bragged up, you know, to the Macedonians. And now he's encouraging them. A year later, he's going, well, now we need to, you know, put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. Let's make this right because... I, want to, I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. And really, that's what he's getting to. And so he takes us right here to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Acacia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. I love that word superfluous. I don't need to go on and on with what Paul's saying, you know, to write about the ministering of the saints. He actually spent the last two chapters talking about it. They had, in reality, been talking about this very issue for a year, a whole year. And now it was time. They had their willingness. Paul says, now you're going to have to move. Paul says there in verse 2 that their zeal their zeal as far as this offering is concerned had been an inspiration and encouraged or provoked others to do the same. That's cool, but I would even take that a step further. And I would say often it is your zeal for the Lord in whatever area that might be that provokes other people to Christ. You know, so often we think that you can show zeal without words. You know, there's an old meme out there. It's not true. It's not accurate, but people say it all the time. You know, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, I can tell you the Bible says that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It is always necessary, if you're going to preach the gospel, to use words. Nobody is ever going to look at the good deeds of anyone and go, I think I'll serve Jesus. If that was true, then Bill Gates is a heck of an evangelist. But I don't know anybody who's come to Christ watching Bill Gates give away millions of dollars because he's a great philanthropist, but he is not an evangelist. So when it comes to those things, when you show your zeal for the Lord, you know, in his word and for his people and for just reaching the lost, then that does provoke other people. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people who have watched some great preacher or whoever and said, man, I just want to be like that guy or I just want to be like that woman. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Paul even told those who followed him, you know, be imitators of me. Nothing wrong with that. Follow me as I follow Christ is what he was saying. But these guys were doing the same thing. They had had this witness, if you will, that they were very generous and it had provoked many, many people to do exactly the same thing. Look at verse 3. He says, yet I sent the brethren lest our boasting of you would be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest happily, if they of the Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not you, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Once again, Paul makes it known here that he was a little leery that they weren't going to do what they had said now for a year that they were going to do. With Titus, you know, Paul makes it clear here that uh, this, and this other brother, he was hoping that all these things that he had said about the Corinthians as far as their giving would prove to be absolutely true. 
because he says, you know, if, I, if someone from Macedonia comes with us, that, that would have been any of the churches in northern Greece, you know, Thessalonica, Philippi, or Berea. If any of these brothers come with me and they find you unprepared to give, Paul says, we are going to be embarrassed. So he just kind of <laughs> reminds them that this is what you said, this is what you need to do. Verse 5, therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, wherefore you had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. What's Paul talking about? What's he saying? He was concerned that there might be criticism that he was somehow in it for the money, that Paul was somehow, if that offering was to be taken while he was there. I understand Paul's apprehension. I've always been apprehensive when people want to take offerings, you know, like when we would go out and minister, especially whether I was speaking at a church or whether I was playing music, and I've done both. And so often, you know, I would ask them because they would tell me, I can't tell you, like, especially when I was touring with Shiloh Circle, how many, we actually had to write up new contracts. That's how bad it got. We got involved with this one group, you know, and, and I won't mention who they were. Uh, they had hired us. I had to, I don't even use that term, but they had signed a contract with us. But when we got there, you know, Shiloh was one of those bands that when we went out and played, we never required a per diem. We just trusted whatever God was going to give us. We were happy with that. And, I, and I'm here to tell you, God always gives way more than you could ever expect. That's why we never asked. But what happened was we got, you know, we got down there to play this concert. And what happened was this guy got up and he begins to raise money. And it really bothered me. It didn't just bother me, but it bothered everybody in the band because we just didn't do that. You know, if you're going to do that, we always told him, do it before we get there. We, we want to go and praise the Lord and just really have nothing to do with that. But, and this is really what Paul was talking about. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. You know, if, if you were really, if you're into the ministry and you're really doing it for the love of Christ, which is what Paul did, and we're going to see that here in just a, a minute, then you're going to understand his mindset. Matter of fact, if you want to get that, turn with me back to 1 Corinthians. Let me show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to start in verse 14, and this is going to give you the heart of Paul. Just as a reminder, this is how he thought about it in his own ministry. And look at verse 14. He says, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel... I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. That I abuse, and you need to make note of that, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself a servant unto all that I might gain the more. That's Paul's mind. That's how he felt about it. I remember myself as a young minister when I first started many, 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 many years ago. And I'm reading these verses. And they really became my inspiration. I, I too can relate to what Paul's talking about. 
you know, it was, you know, while it is acceptable that those who preach the gospel should live in the gospel, I'm thankful personally that I've never had to use that. I've always been able to make the gospel of no charge. And I'm just thankful that God supplied my need other ways. And one time, you know, I had a person ask me, you know, did it really matter? One time it did, that I know of for a fact. It was after, I think it was a Sunday, or maybe it might have been a Wednesday evening. Everybody was pretty much leaving, and there was this one young lady who was still sitting in the pew. And I went back to see if there was something wrong with her. You could tell that she was very agitated, just at the world. She was having a bad day. And I sat down next to her, and I started talking to her about the Lord. And, and she says, oh, you, you have to say that. And I said, why would I have to say it? We are paid to say that. And I said, well, darling, that's where you're wrong with me. I said, no, I do this because I believe it. I absolutely believe it. And I, no, I don't get paid for this. I, I never have. And so, and she did wind up giving her life to the Lord. So, one time, you know, and if that's all that mattered, I mean, that was fine with me. This is what Paul's mindset was. Even though I have the power, even though I, you know, I, I had the ability, I never took it. I never did. And I, and I like Paul's attitude with that, you know. I do think that there's a problem within the body of Christ today. Maybe not so much back then, but today I think there is. Because in reality, so many ministers, and I use that term pretty loosely, coming out of seminaries anymore. I've made it a habit, and I started doing this about 20 years ago when I ran into this one pastor, and he really, you could tell by talking to him, he just was so unknowledged in the things of theology and just really uh, any biblical common sense. And I remember asking him, I said, what did you do before you pastored the church? I mean, what was your occupation? Because he wasn't a young kid. You know, and really what it boiled down to was this guy had, <laughs> this guy had never held down a job. He really had never had a good one. So he, even at tent making, he was pretty much a failure. And so he got into a church because he could then have an occupation that paid him, frankly, to be lazy. It's a problem in the body of Christ today. Because most of these guys, and I take, I retract that. Not most of these guys, some guys have come to be served and not to serve. You know, but there's a lot of good men too and who, have, who are servants and who, regardless of the size of the church that they pastor, you know. But today, it's getting to be more of a problem, which I think is another reason why you see liberality seeping into the church and all this craziness that's going on. Why? Because now you have men who will do anything to keep a paycheck. This is the difference between a hireling and someone who's genuinely called. You know, when you bring this up, sometimes people get really upset, especially a hireling when you're talking to them. I remember one time, it hasn't been too long ago, I was sitting in the office of, of one guy, and he was telling me, well, I can't do this, I can't do that. I said, I would. Well, you can't. I says, no, I can. You can't because you're a hireling. You're scared to death that somebody's going to keep your paycheck. See, I don't, I don't care. God supplies my need. Far beyond anything that I could ever hope for. He always has and he always will. Therefore, I'm able to teach and to preach what the word of God says, whether I like it or not or whether they like it or not. I don't have to worry about the feelings of the people that I'm teaching. 
I love these people. I love the people that I teach and all that's good. But I love the word of God more and the truth of the scriptures more than anything. But today, see, Paul wasn't like that though. Paul said he didn't take anything. He didn't have it. He wasn't a hireling. Paul did it. He wanted to be able to make the gospel of no charge so that he would have something wherein to glory and so that no one could make his glorying void. Verse 6, he said, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. This, my friends, if you're taking notes, you need, if you don't know this one, you need to write this, highlight it, do whatever you got to do. And off to the side in your side notes, write the law of reciprocity, okay? Because this is the way God has designed for your provision. It's a simple but very profound spiritual law. This isn't something, some far-fetched thing, but it is absolutely a spiritual law. And God says, listen, this is the way you should do it. You know, Paul says, listen, if you're going to give, remember, if you give sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you give bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. From now on, gang, until the Lord calls me home, every time we come to a passage that teaches the law of reciprocity, I'm going to drive it home because you need to understand this. Back at, you know, you know, in the early years of Calvary, every time we would have somebody come to us for benevolence, which was fine, I didn't just want to help them. I wanted to help them, but I wanted to help them long term. You know, I wanted to be able to show them this so that they in turn also would be able to follow, you know, what the Lord has said so that their provision would be where it should be, you know? I mean, Jesus was the one who said, give and it shall be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For that, with the same measure that you meet, wherewithal you shall be measured to you again. Luke 6, 38. You know, he says that men shall give into your bosom. I like that. I can't tell you how many times in my own personal life that the Lord has worked through men. He always has. I mean, I, I've heard people talk, you know, they think like... Uh, you know, there's an old song, I don't even remember what the era was, but way before I was born, it was called Pennies from Heaven. You know, a, a nice old song, but, you know, but I think that somehow that's the way people think that God operates when you start talking about the Lord's provision, that somehow it's pennies from heaven. No, it's not pennies, no, no, no. See, God supplies, but he does that through people. He does that through people. He says, good measure, press down, shaking, got running over, shall men give into your bosom. Now, for some of you, that might be an employer. For some of you, it might be just a benefactor or somebody. I'll tell you what happened. One that jumps out at me. I got so many stories I can tell you on this one. When the lab first started, you know, we were still in a house. And uh, we had to move because we were growing too fast and, and uh, we needed a building. We needed a laboratory. And uh, if you didn't realize that, they're pretty expensive. <laughs> Buildings aren't cheap. They don't come for free. And I, uh, we had... Uh, applied for this one and gotten it and, and closing was coming and I didn't have dime one for the closing. I didn't. And it was like in two days. And I'm going, uh, I've got a problem. And I had been praying, you know, Lord. And I was sitting there at the table and, or at my office and the Lord brought, the, you know, you have not because you asked. And I'm going, Lord, I've been asking. <laughs> and then all of a sudden to my mind, the Lord brought this one young man uh, who also owned a laboratory who was not a believer. 
His name was Ed Lockwood. I'm still good friends with him. And, uh, and I said, I, I can't, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I, no, I mean, I barely knew the guy. You know, I was one of winning to Christ. And, and, uh, but the Lord just wouldn't let it, he wouldn't leave me alone. So finally, I just, I, I humbled myself and I picked up the phone and I called Ed and he said, what can I do for you, Doug? And I said, well, you know what? I said, listen, I've got this building. I've got to, you know, we've got to get out of here. I've, you know. And I said, I, I was wondering, what, you know, would you mind loaning? And it was a pretty substantial sum of money. And he said, uh, sure, when you need it. I was shocked. And I said, well, actually, I, I need it tomorrow. <laughs> he said, well, I'll overnight to check to you. And before I hung up, I said, well, there's, there is one little stipulation I need to make you know, make note of this. He goes, what's that? I said, I don't know if I could pay it back. You know, and he said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, here's what we'll do. If you ever make any money at this, give it back. This was a man who was not a believer. So once again, give, and it shall be given. Good measure, press down, shaking your head, running, or shall men give into your bosom. Not, and that's one of many I could tell you that the Lord has, has done in my own personal life, and you probably have your own stories of how God has supplied. But this is what Paul's saying. Listen, he says, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly will reap sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully will reap bountifully. If you're a farmer, and, I, and I, I'm a gardener, I wouldn't call it farmer, I'm a gardener, I like to garden. I can tell you from personal experience that when you sow seed, you are going to get more back than you put in the ground. And it will be the same kind. So you sow in kind, you reap in kind. And it will be far above, I remember, you know, our tomatoes this year. For some reason, the Lord blessed me abundantly and I had more tomatoes than I knew what to do with. And I was giving tomatoes to everybody and, and still wound up happening to yank them out of the ground because it just kept coming on. Now, when it comes to the issue of giving, there's only one, now, you know, the Bible tells us very clearly, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, right? We all know that. But there is one place in the Bible where God makes the exception himself. And that's found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. And he says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. It's the only place in the Bible where God tells you to prove him. Prove me on this. Test me. And I tell you, you know, because why? Because finances will always be there, right? Our need for it is always going to be there. Now, there have been those out in Christendom and unfortunately have made quite a substantial living, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Extorting fleecing the sheep, if you will. But the fact is, is God has given us this law of reciprocity for your benefit. So as we give, God gives. But Paul says, how you give is going to determine how you receive. Sow bountifully, reap bountifully. It's not a hard equation. Now, I couldn't, for the life of me, explain it to you. I don't think any minister could. How does that really work? I don't know, because Jesus said all kinds of crazy things. Jesus said, if you're going to rise, you've got to go down. You know, if you're going to live, you've got to die. If you're going to give, you've got to give. It's just the way he operates. And so I just follow what he says, and it absolutely works. You know, Paul, 
back in, in Matthew, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What all things was he talking about? Well, if you go back and read that chapter, they were talking about food and clothing and wherewithal we shall, you know, he's going, look, if you simply seek the righteousness of God first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. It's God's good will, I love what the Bible says, to give you the kingdom, you know, we want to help people. We want to bring people to Christ. This is one of the ministries of Calvary Chapel. We absolutely want to bring people to the Lord. We want to see people delivered because there is deliverance in Christ. We want to see people sustained in the Lord. And so we want to teach them these principles and these spiritual laws so that they themselves, in turn, can pass those on to their children and to people, the next-door neighbors. That's what we want to do. You know, we just don't want to exist for the sake of, oh, we just want to have a church and, you know, we want to make a difference in this world while we still have the time to do it and that clock is ticking quickly. You know, we're running out of time on that. Verse 7, and we're going to close. Paul says, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And in the Greek, of course, that word is hilarious. Hilarity. I remember as a young man, when I first looked that up, I was shocked when I read that. It was like, hilarious? You know, because there's two things that are dear to any man. What are those two things, Doug? His time and his money. And God wants both. <laughs> he wants it all. But he's more than willing to give it back to you. You know, once again, we cling to the things that we shouldn't cling to. And God just simply says, you know what? Yield it to me. Let me have it back. And let me show you what I can do with that. Let me show you how, much, you know, how many miracles I can perform with that. Paul says, every man according as he purposes in his heart. You know, what's the purpose of your heart? What is it that you're wanting to do? God isn't calling us. We don't have to do anything. You know, we don't want to give grudgingly. You know, it's better, you know, that if, I heard an old preacher say one time that if, he said, you know, if you're getting ready to put money into the plate or whatever and you go, you know, I could have went to Big Boys and got a hamburger and a chocolate malt, but now I'm not going to be able to because he said, go get the hamburger and the chocolate malt because it would be better for you to do that than to give anything to God grudgingly. You know, so many people, and, I, and I'll say this and then we are going to close. Giving is one of those things that is an earmark. It really is a maturity in Christ. And it's the only thing, I remember years ago I went to a pastor's huddle, uh, here in Ohio is actually, and there was a man there by the name of Ted Seidel who was also kind of a the financial big guy for uh, Fort Lauderdale, that huge church I told you about. And he was talking, to, of course, nothing but pastors there at that time. And he was talking about this issue of maturity in giving. And he said, really, it's the only thing that any pastor really has to tell him of the spiritual health of a fellowship is that what's the giving like, you know? Because it tells you how far along in your walk with the Lord that you are. And I am very happy to, to say that Calvary Chapel, Newark, is a very healthy church. They're very mature. 
And it's something I've never seen, and it's something that, that uh, so many have not seen. And, but what a blessing it is to see. And it gives me great hope as to what we're going to be able to do for the Lord, because we are going to be stewards of what God has given us. And I told you before, and, and because it was taught to me years ago, whatever you're going through, look down. Where you're studying through the scriptures is where you need to be. And it is no coincidence, if you will, that we have went through these chapters, you know, uh, it, although some of them, uh, seven and eight being pretty dry, you know, they're not the most inspirational chapters I've ever taught through, and uh, we're coming into some great stuff now, and so you've borne it uh, well uh, going through it, but there's principles here that need to be understood, and we need to learn them, uh, but boy, um, Man, God is doing a work, and I'm so, so proud to be a part of it and just thankful. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity and time to share your word. Lord, I pray for those who are listening by radio that they too, Lord, first, if they do not know you, will go to their knees and ask, Lord Father, for your forgiveness and to become born again in Jesus Christ and to have his blood applied to their life. Lord, and for those who do know you, but maybe, Lord Father, they haven't gotten this particular uh, message of maturity in the, the grace of giving. I pray, Lord Father, you would do a miracle in their hearts. Show them, Lord, how gracious you truly are and how faithful you are in all that you've said and all that you do. We love you so much, and we thank you for all that you do, Lord Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.